Well, if you'll find a Bible and turn to Titus, the New Testament letter called Titus, it's right after 2 Timothy and right before Philemon, which may or may not help, just before Hebrews. In your pew Bibles, that's page 938. We're going to finish our short study of the book of Titus this morning. We're doing three weeks on Titus. This is week three. We did chapter one a couple weeks ago, chapter two last week, chapter three this week. And then next week on on July 4th, I'll uh, finally bring our topical series on the church to um, a a long-anticipated end. (laughs) Uh, Next week, I'll do a sermon, a topical message on religious liberty religious liberty. Is this just a, a, an idea we find in the Constitution, or is this an idea rooted in the Word of God? We'll discuss next week. Uh, and that'll bring our 30-something week series on the church to an end. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and the reason I say that, by the way, is because I don't know about you, but I love just getting into a text and letting a text kind of get into us. You know what I'm saying? Topical's not bad. Topical's good and can have its place. But um, when we get into a text verse by verse, is why normally, ordinarily, we preach through books of the Bible. Later this year, Lord willing, when I come back from sabbatical, we're going to embark upon a long study of the book of Genesis. By long, I don't know what that means. There's 50 chapters. We might do one a week. We might do... Less than one a week. I don't know. So that's definitely my, pre- my preference as a preacher is to get into books of the Bible and preach expositionally as we are doing here in Titus um, because it sets the agenda for us. We just look at the Bible. We let the Bible look at us and, and see what God has. In Titus, as I've said the last couple of weeks, Paul to his young protege, his young friend, Titus is really saying one thing. He's saying, Titus, I left you on the island of Crete to put those churches, there are multiple churches, it's a really big island, by the way, uh, put the churches there into order. Uh, They were disordered. And that began by appointing elders, qualified men to lead, govern, and and shepherd these churches. But um, out of that, he also tells Titus to instruct these churches on how they should live. That's why throughout this letter you you find this phrase, good works, be zealous for good works. We're going to see it again at the end of chapter 3. But these good works aren't just meant to be some, you know, altruism or some humanitarian endeavors. These good works flow out of sound doctrine. This is the other theme of Titus. All over Titus you see this phrase, sound doctrine. The word literally means healthy, healthy doctrine. Instruct them in healthy doctrine. Help them to know what is true and what is not true. And then out of that healthy doctrine will flow a healthy life. And I don't mean like better cholesterol, but better living, better spiritual living, better uh, relational living, better life in the church. So our our vertical understanding of God and, and, and through sound doctrine is meant to and does indeed have a, a direct impact on how we live horizontally in every area of our lives. This is the thrust of Titus, that sound doctrine will lead to a sound life. Right doctrine leads to right behavior. True knowledge of Christ leads to Christ-likeness. This is his main thrust in the letter. Chapter 2, as I said last week, 
begins this section that goes over into chapter 3 where Paul describes what Christian living should look like. And in this section, chapter 2 and the most of chapter 3, there are two parallel units where Paul essentially, he describes some behaviors, then he roots those behaviors in the gospel, then he says, hey Titus, you need to insist on these things. And then he repeats that process over in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Here are some behaviors, here's the gospel, hey, tell them to do this and insist on these things. So, he's going to do what we saw him do last week in chapter 2, again in chapter 3. In chapter 3, we're going to see Paul give several more ways that churches on the island of Crete should live to adorn the gospel or make the gospel look beautiful. That's verses 1 through 2. Then he's going to root these behaviors in the gospel itself, verses 3 through 7. Then towards the end of the letter, he's going to come back again to his main idea and say that God's work in Christ has direct implications for how we live. Again, I can't stress this enough. The main point of this short letter is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is supposed to change your life. It's supposed to literally change your life. Yes, change your destiny, make you right with God, the God who made you, but also change you horizontally in the way that your life works, the way you live your life. We're going to see that in, chapters, in chapter 3. In the end of chapter 3, we're going to see how God uses relationships, horizontal relationships to advance the gospel and build the church. I tried to come up with a clever way of outlining this chapter, I'll give it to you, then you can tell me if it works or not, okay? In your head, not out loud. Here's how we'll outline the chapter. In verses 1 through 2, we see more adorning, more adorning. Verses 3 through 7, more gospel. Verses 3 through 7, more gospel. Verses 8 through 11, more instructions, more instructions. And then verses 12 through 15, more mission, more mission. So in Titus 3, we see more adorning, more gospel, more instructions, and more mission. So in a sense, we're going to see more of what we've already seen in this short letter. Let's begin this number one, more adorning, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So Paul tells Titus to remind the churches to adorn the gospel, to make the gospel look beautiful in two further ways. One is social, one is personal. Verse 1 is the social piece, verse 2 is the personal piece. Verse 1, he says that the churches need to be submissive and obedient to rulers and authorities. This echoes what he says in Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Paul says in Romans 13, 1, because there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, of course, we, we live in a democracy, and we choose our elected leaders, but it's not most fundamentally us who choose them. <laughs> God chooses them. God puts authorities into place. There is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God, so God uses us to put into place the rulers that he wants. 
in Romans 13 and then back here, an implication of that is that we should therefore be submissive and obedient to these rulers and authority. Authorities. Christians are to keep their lives in line with the governments over them. And this applies in any situation, not just in a constitutional republic, not just an elected democracy like ours. This applies in, in any government. The Roman Empire was not like America. It was pagan through and through. Um, it was very different politically, but the rules were the same for them as they are for us. They were, these Christians, just as we are, to live underneath the authority and be submissive to, even obedient to, these, these governments that are over us. Christians are to keep their lives in line with the governments over them. That's the clear teaching of this passage. You don't have to go to seminary to understand this verse. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now let's spend a moment and think carefully about our own cultural moment. I would argue that American evangelicals need to heed and hear these words carefully. Our public witness as American evangelicals, I believe, was damaged when people waving Christian flags and carrying crosses, holding Bibles, singing hymns and praying prayers stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. That any Christ follower would join an insurrection built on lies and misinformation is an egregious error. Why? Because it shows the world that what we care about is the kingdom of man, not the kingdom of God. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. You may not agree or even trust the process but you're supposed to submit and be obedient. This is the word of the Lord. This doesn't mean that there's never a time to disobey the government. So don't hear me wrongly. This, this doesn't mean that there's never a time to disobey a government. Just as a wife shouldn't submit to a husband who's leading her into sin, so also a Christian shouldn't submit to a government who's leading them into sin. Sometimes it's necessary to go against earthly authorities in order to obey God's will. We see this all over the Bible. Remember when the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1, it says they feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. Pharaoh told them to kill the babies. They didn't, thankfully. Or when Moses defied Pharaoh, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 3, when Daniel refused to stop praying, Daniel 6, when Peter and John kept preaching after they were told by the authorities to stop preaching, Acts 4. There are numerous examples of when Christians disobeyed the government. There are numerous examples in history. We remember, remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer who in Germany opposed the Nazis, even worked to take down Hitler and paid with his life. We remember Corey Ten Boom who I believe it was in the Netherlands. Y'all can correct me on that if I'm wrong. Corey Ten Boom, she helped and her family helped hide Jews from the Nazis and lied. She did the right thing and disobeyed her government. We remember Christians who defied racial segregation laws during the 1960s. We remember thousands of Christian martyrs who refused to ren renounce their faith and they end up paying with their lives around the world today. There's a time to disobey the government in order to obey God. 
There's a time for that. But ordinarily, ordinarily, Paul says that Christians should be exemplary subjects to the state. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be ready for every good work. So this is the social ethic, verse 1. Then, verse 2, he gets a little more personal. He moves from the Christian social to their personal ethic. He says in verse 2, Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. He says not to do two things and to do two things. He says not to speak evil, not to quarrel, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy. I read this, and as I read this this week, it was encouraging to know, it was good to remember that personal outrage is not new. People were saying mean things to each other long before Twitter. Or why would Paul have to write this? Paul's point here is basic. A transformed heart leads to a transformed tongue. The way you speak reveals what you believe and who you are. This is why Jesus says that our words will be used as a litmus test on the day of judgment. Christians, as Christians, we, we aren't convinced that we're right all the time about everything. We leave room for disagreement. We assume the best about people, not the worst. We speak the truth in love. We aren't always looking for a fight. We aren't always playing the devil's advocate. We avoid quarreling. We show gentleness and perfect courtesy toward all people. So, this is yet more instruction on how the church can adorn the gospel, make the gospel look beautiful. Now, as we move into the second section, verses 3 through 7, we're going to see how Paul, again, roots these behaviors in the gospel. So let's look at 3 through 7. These are some of the most rich and beautiful verses in the New Testament. Let's look at them carefully. Verse 3. For we, ourselves, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, And hating one another. But. But. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. These verses show us what happens when someone becomes a Christian. Verse 3 tells us who we were before we were saved. Verses 4 through 7 tell us what happened when God saved us. Notice that verse 3 is the basis 
for why we should do verses 1 and 2. The very first word of verse 3 is for. Be submissive to rulers. Don't quarrel. Be gentle. For, because we used to live a different kind of life. Our present lives should bear a contrast to our past lives. Again, becoming a Christian, by definition, means undergoing a life change. The good news is that our past doesn't define us. Do any of you struggle with your past? Come on, we can be honest. Church, do you ever struggle with the things you did, the person you were? Well, this verse is proof that the past doesn't define us. And the past, our past, doesn't hinder God from changing us. We ourselves were this, but, verse 4, and then we'll get into the rest of that in a moment. So God loves to intervene into people's lives that are absolutely a mess. He loves healing the sick and rescuing the lost and adopting the orphan, saving sinners, comforting those who are mourning, giving strength to the weak, bringing the dead to life. Now before Christ, we may have been immoral dead people or moral dead people. Either way, our only hope is resurrection. And the result is a changed life. Verse 3 reminds us who we were, but it's not the end of the story for those who are in Christ. Verse 4 through 7 says, but, but, that's not the end, there's more, there's something that happened to you in your foolishness, in your disobedience, in your slavery to all these passions and pleasures, in your envy, all of that, something happened to change all of that. And then verses 4 through 7 tell us basically what God did, why He did it, how He did it, and the result of it. So let's go through it bit by bit. What did God do? Verse 4, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And beginning in verse 5, He saved us. He saved us. What did God do? He saved us. Because of His goodness and love, He saved us. Notice the word appearing there. Verse into verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. God's appearing is called the incarnation. This is when God, who is spirit, put on human flesh and lived among us. And I love how Dane Ortland describes this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. If you haven't read this yet, please read this this summer. Amen. Thank you, Justin. Read Gentle and Lowly. I have several more copies if you need one in the library. Here's what Ortland says about the incarnation. The richness of divine mercy becomes real to us, not only when we see how depraved we naturally are, but also when we see that the river of mercy flowing out of God's heart took shape as a man. Perhaps the notion of heavenly mercy seems abstract. But what if that mercy became something we could see, hear, and touch? Think about it. When someone texts you and says, love you, bro, sis, I don't know what ladies call each other. That's great. That's encouraging. But when someone comes up to you and looks you in the face and grabs you and just says, I love you, I'm thankful for you, be encouraged. 
Which one's better? I'm going to take the hug every day. When someone comes near to you, they draw in close, they look you in the eyeballs, and they see you, especially those who know you the best. They know you. They know what you've done. They know what you've said. They know everything. They draw near anyways, and they just grab you. This is mercy. This is not some abstract idea. This is mercy. This is why the appearance of God is massively important to our theology. It's not some doctrine that just, you know, we need to know up here. It's a, it's a doctrine. It's a reality that should grip our lives. That God, who made the universe, has drawn near to you and literally wants to grab onto you because He became a man so that everyone who puts their trust in Him will be adopted into his arms. This is the beauty of the gospel. Oh, I have more from Ortland. There's a lot more, but you have to read the book. He references chapter 2, verse 11. Look up at chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. You see that word again? Appeared. The incarnation. The grace of God has appeared. Referencing 2.11, Ortland concludes, quote, The grace and mercy of God is so bound up with and manifested in Jesus Himself that to speak of Christ appearing is to speak of grace appearing. In other words, grace didn't like float down from heaven, you know, as fairy dust or something. Grace came down to us in the flesh. When Jesus appeared, grace appeared. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. Jesus came to save you. Jesus didn't come to tell you how bad you are. He came to make you something better. Jesus didn't come to help you be good and religious. Jesus came to raise you from the dead and make you new. The great Puritan Richard Sibbs says, Christ is nothing but pure grace clothed with our nature. The very fact that God appeared reveals His love because of how we're described in verse 3. This is, this is crazy. It's not just that Jesus appeared, that God appeared in Christ. It's that He appeared to people like verse 3. <laughs> he didn't come into you know, a self-respecting group like this. He came for fools, verse 3, disobedient people, people who are slaves to every passion and pleasure the world offers. He came to people who passed their days, they literally just live day after day wondering how they can hurt people, malice, and wanting what is not theirs, envy. People who are hated by others and hate one another. And Jesus just walks into the room and says, these are the kind of people I've come for. That's who you were, by the way. This is incredible. This is the amazing part of amazing grace. Do you remember what we sang? This is the amazing part. That Jesus walked into a room full of fools and disobedient and enslaved people. And he said, I want to make you free. And I want to make you alive. And I want to make you new. Because I love you. Because I love you.
God saved us. Interestingly, according to this text, God saved us when He sent Jesus to the earth. When Jesus came to live the life we could never live, die on the cross for our sins, be buried and then rise again on the third day, Jesus saved us. So everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation and turns away from their sins, they will be saved. So in a sense, if you're a Christian brother and sister, you were saved 2,000 years ago. When Christ appeared, He saved His people. The application of this is, is maybe one you haven't thought of. Um, many will worry that they don't remember the exact moment they became a Christian. Have you ever worried over this? You're like, yeah, John, when we did the membership interview and you and Nick were asking for our testimony and I couldn't remember when I became a Christian. (laughs) Well, there's no need to worry. Some people will remember exactly when God saved them and some will not. Temporally. Some people will remember the moment. I have it burned in my mind. Some people have no idea, and that's okay. That's okay. The only thing that matters is today. Is your hope and trust fully in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Today. Right now. Right now are you hoping in Jesus Christ? Like, John, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid, and I got baptized, but my whole life was not really lived for Christ. Today, where are you today? What do you believe about Jesus today? Are you embracing him today? This is what matters. God saved us when Jesus appeared, so we don't have to fret so much about remembering the exact moment of our conversion. This is what God did. Why did he do this? Why did God do this saving work? Look at the end of verse 5. He saved us, verse 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. God wanted to show His mercy, the glory of His mercy. He wanted to show that we couldn't earn salvation. And so He came to, to give us something that we couldn't gain on our own. This means that our works contribute nothing to our salvation. Our works actually reveal our need for salvation. Our righteous works are tainted with self-righteousness and pride. So we need to be saved from our works. God's mercy is for those who know that they need it, not for those who think that they deserve it. God came to reveal the glory of His mercy, not to massage our egos. This means, by way of application, that we're perhaps closest to revealing the heart of God when we have mercy on someone who's done wrong to us. Has anyone ever done wrong to you? Has anyone ever done wrong to you? Because God has given us what we don't deserve, we can give others what they don't deserve. There may be some, even this morning, who need to forgive someone who's wronged them. Why choose the bondage of unforgiveness when you can live in the freedom of mercy? Maybe there's a phone call you need to make. Maybe there's a conversation over coffee that needs to be had. We don't deserve mercy. The people who've wronged us don't deserve mercy. But Christ gave us mercy, and so we can give others mercy. God sent us mercy when He sent us Jesus 
Now, how was Jesus' work? We've done the kind of what and the why. How was Jesus' mercy, this more vague concept, how was his mercy applied to us? How did the person of Jesus and his mercy become yours? Well, look at verse 5 again, the end of verse 5 and into verse 6. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So God saved us. God brought his mercy to bear on our lives. God gave us his son, Jesus, through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to make us new. Regeneration simply means to be born again or made new. Do you remember what Damien read earlier? What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Something has to happen to someone for them to enter heaven. God the Holy Spirit has to wash them, make them alive, and make them new. And this is what happens in our hearts at the moment of conversion. Apart from this work, our hearts will remain hard and dead. What was that song we just sang? A head full of rocks, a heart full of stone, or something like that? Was that it, Mason? That's us before Christ. But if the Holy Spirit comes to us in power for salvation, then our hearts become soft and alive. Our unresponsive hearts become responsive to God. Because of sin, our hearts are hard. We don't want anything to do with God, much less His rules, much less His Bible, much less His church. We think that we're good enough on our own, that we can do this on our own, that we'll be okay because we're a basically good person. But the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says, no, despite all your goodness, you're actually dead. You're dead. And all the goodness that fills your life can be a gift of God's common grace, but it will gain you nothing in God's courtroom. Regeneration has to happen. Renewal has to happen. Washing has to happen. And it can and does happen when God the Holy Spirit comes to a person, opens the eyes of their hearts so that they see the glory of Christ in the gospel. That's 2 Corinthians 4. This is worth reading. So turn to 2 Corinthians 4. I started to quote it, but uh, instead of butchering it, let me just read it. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6 describes what Titus 3 is talking about. Puts a little bit more meat on the bones. 2 Corinthians 4, 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, key word, seeing, not physical eyes, spiritual eyes, eyes of the heart. Keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge 
of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So just as what happened in Genesis 1 where God speaks and light comes into being, so also that same exact kind of thing has to happen in your heart for you to become a Christian. God has to speak and give you eyes to see light in the gospel, in the face of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're just going to see darkness. You're going to see Jesus as basically a good guy. You're going to see Jesus as kind of your ticket out of hell, but not really worth giving up your life for. But if God turns the lights on, you'll see everything differently. Has God turned the lights on for you? How do you see Jesus? Do you see glory in Christ? Is there something compelling in the person of Jesus Christ? Something, I mean, I know, I know who I'm preaching to. I know many of you are like, yes, John, get on with it. Seriously, is there something about Jesus that you just can't shake? You just can't shake it. There's something about that man, right? He's done something to you. The deepest part of you that will never be undone. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates he gives you life. As the text says back in uh, excuse me, Titus 3, regenerates, washes, and renews. Oh, the, the imagery. The Holy Spirit washes you because you're dirty. He renews you because you're old. He regenerates you because you're dead. All of this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is how the mercy of Christ and the person of Jesus Christ is brought to bear on your individual Lives. Now there's agency here. God, the Holy Spirit does this, but He does it through the agency of His Word. James 1.18, of His own will He brought us forth by the Word of truth. Romans 10.17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So the miracle of conversion happens when the Spirit of God accompanies the Word of God and enables a person to embrace it. This is why that we have to tell people the Word. Our lost friends and family members, our neighbors, the nations, those who are going to do airport pickup in a month or so, you have to open your mouth and say the Word of the Gospel. It's the agents, it's the means that God has planned to call His people. The lights come on through the switch of the Word. The Holy Spirit is the finger. The Word is the switch. The Word has to be present for regeneration to happen. And so we're people who are zealous to spread the Word. We're zealous to tell people the Word. We know that people will reject it, but we also know that they won't be saved unless they hear it. So we're zealous to tell people the word. The result of all this, in verse 7, the result of this miracle called regeneration is, verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God's grace makes us right with Him, justified. We're legally declared not guilty. We're even legally declared righteous. And it also brings us into His family of sons and daughters. This is the language of heirs. Heirs implies adoption. An heir is someone who gets everything that their parents had. Those who've been justified have been adopted and have become heirs of God. This is an incredible promise. God's children. This means that God's children are going to get God's 
stuff, if you will. Listen to how Jesus says it in Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. Why? Because you're His kids. He wants to give you the best that He has. He wants to give you His kingdom. This means our best life is not now, but later. Our best life will be in the kingdom of God when we receive our inheritance completely. God's goodness, love, mercy, and grace toward us in Jesus, which has been been brought home to our hearts through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, creates in us this unshakable hope that our future in God's kingdom is secure. Remember Jesus' words there in Luke 12, 32. He begins by saying, Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Why? Because you're going to get the kingdom of God. (laughs) I don't know about you, but fear plagues my life. Does fear plague your life? Fear of everything. Fear of man, you know. Fear of a traffic, that accident. What would happen to my kids, you know. Fear not. Why? Because you have the kingdom. You have the kingdom. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Let's move into our third point, number three. We've seen more adorning, more gospel. Now, number three, more instructions. We can't hear these instructions right, remember, unless we understand the gospel. So gospel has to be right in our heads and hearts, and then these instructions become something we want to do, not just something we have to do. Verses 8 through 11, Paul comes back to this idea of the gospel shaping the way we live. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he is self-condemned so believers verse 8 should be devoted to doing good but one of the good things that we should be devoted to includes pursuing peaceable relationship with false teachers in the church, if possible, and then removing them when necessary. Paul says Titus should insist on these things, verse 8. Why? So that those who believe in, in God may devote themselves to good works. Paul wants Titus to insist on these things so that believers will give up their lives to serve others. The gospel must be insisted upon so that then a life worthy of the gospel can be lived. Good works are a mark of a true believer. And one of the good works in this text is that we should avoid false teachers and remove false teachers in the church. Now the, content, the exact content of their false teaching is not exactly clear. Paul does say in verse 9 that it's foolish... He says it involves genealogies, so it's likely of an Old Testament variety. 
He says it's creating dissensions and quarrels about the law. Again, probably Jewish in origin. This, this teaching is only producing strife or dissension, arguments and fights. It's unprofitable and worthless. It's full of fables and silly stories and arguments about words that produces conflict within the church. So Paul tells Titus to deal with these teachers the way he does there in verse 10 because this is serious business. Anything that disrupts the harmony and unity of the church must be dealt with because the church is where the gospel lives and where the gospel goes forth. So after two warnings, verse 10, these false teachers, the ones stirring up division, are to be put out of the church, have nothing more to do with him. The divisive person is to be warned twice. They refuse to repent and change. They're to be removed from the church. This is following the exact pattern Jesus talked about in Matthew 18. We have to remember, though, that if and when this ever happens in our church or any church, that it's not the church's fault. It's the unrepentant sinner's fault. Paul says in verse 11 what Jesus has already said. The person who refuses to change after being confronted is twisted by sin and self-condemned. It's not Paul's fault or Titus's fault or the church's fault. It's the false teacher's fault. They're stubbornly refusing to heed the word of God. The New Testament also makes it clear that when a church removes someone from the church, it must be done out of love and for that person's good. Restoration is the goal, not just punishment. The church only removes people out of a hope and prayer for their return. But the New Testament, as here, indicates The New Testament makes it clear that a refusal to heed these warnings from the church means that a Christian or someone who claims the name of Christ should be excluded from the Christian community. This again is interesting. When you think about all that I've said in these three weeks about Titus, the gospel creates a new kind of life. Part of that life means we take teaching seriously. If I ever start teaching some crazy stuff, guess what you get to do? Verse 10. All right, verse 10. If anyone stirs up division in the church, we go to them one-on-one. We have a conversation. We, we say, you said this, and this is what I heard. Is this what you meant? We get clarification. We don't assume the worst. We assume the best, and we work from there. But if someone keeps teaching something false, keeps teaching something contrary to the Word of God, we go to them again, and we say, hey, brother, sister, friend, we, we heard you say this, but... The Bible says this, do you really believe that? Yes, I do. Christians don't believe that. We're going to have to take this to the church. So the gospel not only creates individual new life individually, it creates a new life corporately where we deal with unrepentant sin in the church as instructed here. So we've seen more instructions More gospel, more adorning. Now, lastly, more mission. Paul concludes his correspondence to Titus with some personal instructions. Interestingly, in these last four verses, we're tempted to throw away these kind of verses. Let's be honest. All these names, it's kind of like the end of the letter. We breeze through it. But there's some really strategically cool stuff here. Interestingly, all the things in these verses kind of support this idea that Paul is interested in one primary thing, and that's advancing the mission of the gospel. So we see more mission. Three observations from verse 12. First, let me read the verses, excuse me, 12 through 15. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. 
Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Three observations. First, God uses relationships to advance the gospel and build up the church. Notice Paul's network of friends. Verse 12, Artemis and Tychicus. Verse 13, Zenos and Apollos. Verse 15, all who are with me. Paul was an apostle. Paul wasn't Superman. He, like us, needed relationships for help, encouragement, and prayer. He didn't attempt to serve Christ by himself. He didn't attempt to advance the mission by himself. He knew that Jesus' mission was a group project. We, likewise, need each other. This is why the New Testament gives us 59, at least 59, one another commands. 59 times does it say one another something. Love one another is 15 of those 59. And then underneath that umbrella are all these other examples like serve one another, forgive one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, offer hospitality to one another, bear one another's burdens, and on and on I could go. The point is that do we, like Paul, see the need for other Christians in our life? Some practical ways to live this out. To grow in these one another commands are to be actively engaged in a local church. Find a gospel preaching church to commit yourself to, to join, and to go all in with. No perfect church out there, but to join with all of its warts and bruises and to give your life to the good of that people. Not seeing it as a content provider, but as a people to grow with and serve. Another way practically we can do this, and Susie and I have found this so helpful. We, we've tried to do, do this, not perfect at it, but when, when, when there are practical needs that come up in people's lives, instead of saying, hey, let me know if you need anything, which is super generic and vague and kind of a throwaway statement, let's be honest, say something like this, hey, can I bring you dinner on Tuesday? Hey, can we have coffee on Wednesday? Hey, can we go for a walk on Thursday? Hey, can I call you tonight so we can talk about this? So instead of the vague, generic, throwaway, let me know if you need anything, say something more concrete, say something more specific, say something more more loving, where you are entering that person's life strategically and not putting the onus on them to come to you, but rather you're going to them. This is Christian love. This is Christ-like love. We go towards people. We don't wait for people to come towards us. We should look for ways to create a culture of evangelism here at PHBC. Again, Paul knew that he couldn't advance the mission of Jesus Christ by himself. He had a whole network, a host of people across the Roman Empire helping him advance the mission of Christ. So how can we do that? Well, when we share the gospel with someone, we can ask other church members to pray for us. When we know we're going into a gospel conversation, we can text our Our brothers and sisters say, hey, please pray for me. We can invite other members over when we have a lost friend over for dinner and do hospitality together. We need to find ways to incorporate the whole church into our evangelism. The mission of making disciples is our mission, not just your mission. Paul understood that the gospel only advanced through 
personal relationships. That's the first observation. Number two is, verse 13, gospel workers should be supported by local churches. Verse 13, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they like nothing. Apollos was a great preacher. Zenos we're not so sure about. Probably he's a preacher too. If he's a lawyer, a lawyer at that time basically meant they were a, a trained rhetorician. They were a professional public speaker. So these brothers are probably itinerant evangelists. We know Apollos was. They're probably itinerant evangelists, maybe even church, plan, church planners. Paul says here, speed them on their way and make sure they don't lack for anything. This is instructive for us. It means that gospel workers should be supported by local churches. This applies to local workers and workers who are sent out abroad. Those called to preach the gospel and plant and pastor churches should be supported financially by local churches so that they'll be free from the burden of gainful employment outside the church. This is 1 Corinthians 9.14. The Lord commanded those that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This means, and just to state the obvious, that Susie and me and my kids don't eat unless you're generous. <laughs> and you are. <laughs> and you are. I'm able to give my life to the ministry of the word in this particular place because of your support. Did you understand that? Do you understand? Like the only way that that happens is if you give to our church and you are and you do faithfully, generously. Thank you. Your giving is not just for me, obviously. Your giving goes across the world. It allows us to support church planners here in Texas, church planners in North America, international missionaries all over the world. Jared just prayed for the Stockup family in West Asia who are working to translate the Bible into a language that doesn't even have a written language. We're sending them money every month. When you give to this church, it is going literally to the nations. You're supporting gospel work and gospel workers both here and all over the world. And this is as it should be. Gospel workers are meant to be provided for by and through local churches. Number three, final observation, and we'll land the plane. Verse 14, churches should help cases of urgent need. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfaithful. It's interesting that he throws the word urgent in there, isn't it? Even in a church like ours, there are a plethora of needs. All of us have needs. And he's getting at this idea that none of us can do everything. So we have to differentiate as a church and as individuals, as husband, wife, single person, we have to differentiate between need and urgent need. This is one reason why we focus as a church our missions giving on the unreached people groups of the world. Why? Because their need is greater. People who have no access to the gospel have a much bigger need than people who have access to the gospel. So we focus our missions monies on the unreached people groups of the world. This is why as a local church, we focus our member care funds on urgent needs and not on every single need that arises. If you know of an urgent need in our church, if you have an urgent need, please let your elders know. Let the housels, our deacons of member care, know we're called to help one another in every way. And sometimes this means financially and material. Don't be afraid to ask if the need is urgent. This is yet one more way we devote ourselves to good works. 
We aren't saved by these works, but if we are saved, there will be good works that start to flow out of our lives and out of the life of our church. What we do reveals what we believe. We can't do everything, but we should all be doing something to advance the mission of Christ. Now to close, one final question and we're done. In light of the goodness and kindness of God that has appeared to you, in light of the goodness and loving kindness of God that has appeared to you, what good works is the Lord leading you to do? In light of His goodness that has come to you, what good works is the Lord leading you to do? And, more fundamentally, has the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared to you? Have you turned away from your sins and put all of your hope in Jesus Christ? If you'd like more information on what it means to follow Jesus, grab me or Jared, one of our elders. Grab the friend next to you to talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Jesus comes doing us good so that we might turn around and do others good in His name. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It's rich. It's sufficient. It um, encourages us. It challenges us. And Lord, I, I can't imagine all the things that you want to accomplish here today. So I pray that you would use your word by the power of your Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to help us become the men and women you want us to be. I pray that our church would be zealous for good works. I pray that we would continue to be faithful to help cases of urgent need, to be faithful to support the gospel ministry both here and abroad, and faithful to pour our lives into a network of relationships called the local church for our own good and for the good of others. We can't do any of this unless the Holy Spirit comes and helps us. Spirit of God, you've given us life, and we need your day. We need your help every day, every day of our lives. Please come, Holy Spirit. Help us to do these things. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.